This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Their scientists played a substantial role in developing more than half the cancer drugs approved by the FDA in the last five years. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute is changing lives everywhere. Find out more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. To discuss the implications of the Supreme Court's major decisions this week, we turn to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. With a welcome to you both, the Supreme Court has given us much to discuss on this Friday. Let's start with the Supreme Court siding with a web designer in Colorado who said that she had a First Amendment right to refuse to provide services to same-sex couples despite a law in Colorado that forbids discrimination against gay people. Uh, David, there are those on the right, there are religious conservatives who are hailing this as a victory for religious liberty, and there are others who say this ruling created a constitutional right to discriminate. How do you see it? Yeah, I, I don't have a quality, I'm not qualified to give it a legal opinion, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. So I look at it, is it good or bad for society? And so in this case, you had the right for artistic expression against non-discrimination, and it was a contest between those two, and the court chose free expression. That strikes me just as someone who lives in American society as doing great harm to American society. It seems to me the idea that we do not discriminate in our businesses is just, that's much more a serious thing to break that than to restrict someone who's really running a business, not just painting a painting, but is running a business. And if that, that person who's running a business is allowed to discriminate, it seems to me it's just a poison uh, in our society. Jonathan, using David's frame, the impact on society, what's your assessment of this ruling? Um, I have to tell you, Jeff, um, this ruling and a bunch of other rulings from this court pains me, and it pains me personally. Um, and I think David framed it um, perfectly. I'm not a lawyer also, but I will say that this decision is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. And it's also wrong because this, this web designer, no one asked her to do what she says she feels she'll be forced to do. And so the Supreme Court just made it possible for private businesses to discriminate against, uh, against people like me simply because they fear that they might have to do something that no one asked them to do. Um, David is absolutely right. This decision um, is, is definitely a poison on society, also because it's so broad, who's to say that it doesn't stop at web designers or, or private businesses, that it doesn't lead to more erosion of, uh, of, of rights for protected classes? On the matter of the Supreme Court striking down the use of affirmative action in college admissions policies, uh, colleges certainly have a game plan. We just heard that, that segment about how some colleges are emphasizing the use of, of college essays. And President Biden suggested a new standard consistent with the law whereby schools could take into account the kinds of adversity that students have overcome. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think there are three things to be said about this. One, we need to have diverse colleges and universities. So we need to have diverse all our institutions. Two, I do think there was massive discrimination against Asian Americans. And three, the college admissions game at the elite level is rigged toward the rich. There are so many of these schools have more families, uh, more kids from families in the top 1% than the bottom 60%. And so to me, the way out, which I hope colleges will do, will say, okay, you're not letting us to do racial preferences, but we're gonna do class preferences. And if you come from a family with less wealth, we're gonna give you a preference. And if you do that, 
because of the historic disparities played between blacks and whites, you can increase the number of black students, increase the number of Hispanic students, and you basically take down what has become a caste society where rich parents send their rich kids to elite schools who then marry each other and have written, educated kids who go to elite schools. And that has just uh, created this horrific class divide in our society. So I think there is a way to, to do this right and get everything we want, but the universities have to be willing to not bias their whole system, these elite universities, toward the rich. I want to read some notable reaction to this Supreme Court decision. Uh, Nikki Haley had to say this. She says, picking winners and losers based on race is fundamentally wrong. The decision will help every student, no matter their background, have a better opportunity to achieve the American dream. And from the former First Lady, Michelle Obama, she had this to say. She says, so often we just accept that money, power, and privilege are perfectly justifiable forms of, affirm of affirmative action, while kids growing up like I did are expected to compete when the ground is anything but level. Jonathan, how do you see this? This is another Supreme Court decision that hits me personally, were it not for, for affirmative action, Jeff. I wouldn't be sitting in this seat. I wouldn't be with, with David Brooks. I would not have gotten the great education I got at Carleton College. And the thing that I find most offensive about this decision is the foundation of this so-called colorblind constitution that affirmative action flew in the face of, of the framers' colorblind constitution, which is a fallacy which I think Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson did a superb job of, of showing, not just to the justices, who I'm sure know very well the history, but to the American people, outlining to them in, in a great synopsis of, of our tortured American history when it, comes to, when it comes to race, why something as modest as affirmative action was necessary. And so, once again, you've got a Supreme, a Supreme Court, which I think, between the two decisions we're talking about right now and the next one we're going to talk about in terms of st the student loan forgiveness, you know, the American people, um, they're going to start looking at the Supreme Court not as judges sitting on high and, and being the referee, but as, as political actors who don't have the interests of a majority of the American people at heart. Well, on that point, the, the court striking down President Biden's plan to cancel uh, student debt for roughly 40 million people, uh, how might that play politically? And, and to Jonathan's point, how does it affect the legitimacy of the court? Yeah, first, you know, I, I wrote a column and more or less endorsing the Biden deciding to, to uh, give people a break on the debt. But even at that time, I thought there's no way this is constitutional. Uh, there's just no way that the U U.S. Constitution thinks the U United States president should sign a piece of paper and be willing to spend $400 million. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the power to spend is clearly in the House, or really clearly in the Congress. So and Democrats had that concern initially. Initially, and Joe Biden had that yeah, concern right. initially. And so I think, A, the way it's played out, he can blame the court for not getting the loans, not himself. And, and he will try to uh, apparently use the Higher Education Act to go around this the other way. I'm not sure he can do it as ambitiously as he had, but that would be fine by me. If he wanted to take especially students who had received Pell Grants while in education and focus all the relief on them, that would be fine by me because the, the, the program does skew a little toward uh, people who are going to make a lot of money. Just one little point on all these three cases. The tone that these justices are using against each other is, was introduced by Scalia 
years ago, and it's a brutalized and often very personalizing tone they're using with each other. And that, to me, does undermine the credibility of the court. They really look like cage fighters at this point. And, and that's, they can render their decisions, but do it in a way that feels legalistic and mm. prudent. Yeah. Jonathan, taken together, you're about to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you know what? The personal tone uh, coming particularly from the liberal justices writing in the dissent, I am here for it, 100%. Because we're not talking about arcane policies and arcane uh, readings of the Constitution as it, as it applies to something that applies to a very narrow set of people. We're talking about dissents that are thundering against a court that is going against stare decisis, that is stripping rights away from people that they have come to rely on. Uh, Roe v. Wade, 50 years, affirmative action, almost 50 years. And Justice Thomas, last year in the Dobbs decision, signaled that Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell should also be overturned. So if Justices Soto, uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson and the other liberals on the court want to thunder against their six, three, the six uh, conservative justices, you know what? Have at it because that's the voice um, of a lot of millions of Americans who are right now, tonight, as we're speaking, fearful of what other rights are going to go by the wayside. I was actually thinking of Thomas going against Jackson, but... <laughs> well, in the couple of minutes that remain, uh, David, I want to draw you out on this column that you wrote about what the White House is calling Bidenomics, President Biden's economic vision. And you asked the question in the column, why are Americans feeling so bad about an economy that's so good? The main problem is national psychology. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, the misery index measures how well the economy is doing. And usually presidents win if the economy is doing pretty well. And the economy is doing better now than when Reagan won, than when Obama won, than when Clinton won, when Bush won. And yet, Biden's not getting the, pro the benefits, and partly because people are still haunted by inflation, but partly we've been through a national psychological demoralization. And we've lost confidence in ourselves because of the Trump years. And so we've become much more pessimistic. And whether Biden can overcome that and restore people and look around the country, a lot's going wrong, but the economy is go actually going quite well. If he can do that, he really has to do that to win re-election. And Jonathan, we have about 30 seconds left. I know you have an impressive Rolodex of White House officials that you, people you speak to frequently. Do they think that they can counter this, this national malaise, this sense of malaise, the national mood? They're, they're, they're going to try. And the fact that they're trying to do it now more than a year out from the, from the election tells me that they're taking it seriously and that they actually stand a chance of breaking through to the American people so that the, the good economic data can, um, can match up to the good feelings that they hope the American people will have by November of 24. Jonathan Capehart and David Brooks, our deep thanks to you both.